Okay, so your Bibles are on uh, Ephesians 6, right? 5 through 9, that's where we're going to be this morning. That will be our text. Um, Just need to kind of slide backwards a little bit. Back in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul commanded believers uh, to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And so that's been kind of the foundational verse for everything that we've been looking at, you know, the whole section on wives and then husbands and then children and parents. Um, So that's, you know, all of those things that we've been looking at that have come after that verse have been examples of what that submitting to one another looks like. And um, in the text that we're looking at this morning, Paul gives his final illustration of what submission to one another out of reverence for Christ should look like. So he's been given examples, right? You go, wives, husbands, children, all that. This is like the fourth example. So that's the way that we should look at this text. It's the fourth and kind of final example. Before we get into Christian warfare, if you will, uh, spiritual warfare, which we're going to be looking at next week and the week after, Lord willing, I'm really excited about looking at that because I think that's going to be really equipping for us. Because I think so often, you know, we're Life is really hard and difficult, and, you know, we have people problems and relational issues and all that, and we tend to fight fire with fire and with the flesh, and we're going to be reminded once again that really everything that's going on around us, even in our own relationships with people, has a spiritual nature to it, and so those things have to be fought properly with the right weaponry, or at least we have to respond right. So that's what we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks. Excited about that, but today we're going to be looking at employees and employers, the mutual submission of them. And uh, it was a a very challenging text for me. Uh, I think pretty much everyone in here is either an employee or an employer, or maybe you were for a long time and you're retired, right? So I think that we'll, I guess some of these young guys here are like, dude, I don't work. You need to. Uh, You will one day, and you'll either be an employee or an employer, um, so it's, it, it'll be relevant for you as well, and I think it's, it's going to be good. Um, but the way that Paul talks about it, he talks about it in the whole slave and master uh, verbiage or you know, language, if you will, and, and obviously that, I suppose that would still you know, apply in parts of the world where slavery is still pretty you know, active, but for us, we're going to be looking at it in the employee-employer kind of category. By extension, that's what Paul's saying anyways. It applies to, you know, all authority and these sorts of things, so it's okay for us to do that. It's not wrong for us to do that. So we've already read our main text. Let's just pray one more time, and, and we'll get to work. Sound good? Yeah? Father, thank you for this time of just worship. You know, it's all worship. These folks have come down here to worship you. And, uh, and we do that through prayer, and we do that through fellowship, and we do that through singing and reading scripture and sermons and just all of it. And so this is just more worship. And I pray that we would worship you um, with open hearts and minds, not being distracted, but we would listen to your word. And we all need to realize and be sobered by the fact that this is your voice speaking to us. This is not... I mean, if if it's coming from the scripture, it's your voice. And so it's not me, it's not my opinions. And half the time I find great difficulty with it all. Um, Challenging for me as well, but it's not not me speaking. It's 
it's you speaking to us. It's you addressing your people and addressing people that aren't yours yet. And so uh, may we ponder that for a moment, just realizing that this is your word. This is coming right from the very word of God, the scripture, the 66-book Bible, uh, more particularly from Ephesians. So we say, speak to us, Father. May we humble ourselves and place ourselves at your feet. Send the Holy Spirit in power that he might take the word and apply it. We might learn mutual submission in the workplace. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. All right, you guys ready to take some notes? Let's get rocking. Uh, We're going to look at 5A, really just the first word. The first word in 5, and that's bond servants. That's what it says in the ESV. Probably says the same thing in most other translations. One or two might say slave. But what is a bond servant? It's just another name for slave, bond servants and slaves. It's kind of synonymous. It's kind of the same thing. There might be some variation, but that's essentially what he's talking about here. We're talking about slaves. And in the previous verses, Paul wrote about households, right? He's been speaking about wives. He's been speaking about husbands. He's been speaking about children and all these relationships Uh, that happen under the roof, so to speak. And so it's very likely that he had household servants or slaves in mind here. Okay, he's been talking about the house. He's been talking about people, you know, a family. He's been talking about a family unit, if you will. Not that slaves were a part of a family unit, but they were part of a household. And so I'm pretty certain that that's what he means here. He's talking about household bond servants, if you will. And just to give you some history and stuff, in biblical times... You know, slavery was very, very, very common. I mean, it was completely normative, um, especially in Greco-Roman culture, Greek or Roman culture. I mean, it was just massive. It's estimated that back at this time when Paul wrote this, there were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That's half the population. It was about 120 to 150 million people in the Roman Empire. So about half of those people were bond servants or slaves. So you can get an idea. What's America? 300 million people. Take half of America, divide it. Half of them are slaves, so to speak. So pretty, pretty insane. Half the population. Now, this is due in part to the fact that Roman citizens over time came to see work as being beneath their dignity. Okay, at one time, this was a very hard-working civilization, but over time, they began to see work as something that's really not appropriate for them because they have such high status, you know, they're, they're, a, they're an educated people, and so they began to see work as being beneath their level of dignity, if you will. And so the empire, you know, gradually came to function largely by slave power because of that you know, type of thinking. Oh, it's just below me to work. I can't do it. And so they would just hire slaves and what have you or buy slaves. And slaves were literally bought. They were sold. They were traded. um, They were used. And unfortunately, many were discarded like, you know, old animals that couldn't perform anymore or like old tools that don't work anymore. You know how we throw away tools over. I try not to throw them away, but we've done it before. But slaves were literally treated like that. Unbelievable. 
Yeah, don't buy your stuff on the Snap-on truck. You don't ever throw that away because it's got a lifetime warranty, right? Cost you a lifetime's worth of wages to get one screwdriver. But now, We used to buy them all the time. You probably still do. Now, one Roman writer, ancient writer, divided, he, he literally divided agricultural instruments into three classes. Okay, this is like straight out of an old history book. The three classes of his agricultural instruments were like the articulate, okay, so that were the, that's the slaves, the inarticulate, that's the animals, and then you have the mute, and those are the tools. And so, you know, when, when this guy went out to his tool shed, and there were slaves in the tool shed, he had, he had them all lined up in different categories. There's the ones that can communicate, those are the slaves, they're a tool, so to speak, and then you've got, you know, you've got the mute one, that's actually the real inanimate object tool that can do nothing, and then you have animals who are inarticulate. And that's the way that, that many in that time viewed slaves. Uh, the only distinction uh, with the slave above animals and tools was that he or she could speak. Literally. That was the only difference between that living, breathing, image-bearer person who serves your household and a Phillips screwdriver. The difference between them is one speaks, the other doesn't. No dignity at all. In fact, slaves during this day were actually referred to as living tools. That's what they were called. The Roman statesman Cato said, Old slaves should be thrown on a dump. And when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It's not worth your money. Take the sick slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools talking about people. Well, Caesar Augustus, uh, one of the emperors, once crucified a slave uh, because this slave accidentally, uh, I believe, killed like one of his pet birds. I don't know if he overfed it. I don't know if he let it out and it flew away. I don't know if he stepped on it. I don't know what he did, but he had like this pet dove or some kind of a pet bird and he literally crucified his slave because he hurt that animal. Unbelievable. You know, that fact, oh, it was a pet quail. I didn't even know you could have quail as pet, but apparently he killed this thing. There was another guy named uh, Polio. He threw one of his slaves into a pond filled with lamprey eels, which were deadly, for breaking a crystal goblet. Okay, he was probably a bond servant in his household, probably was assigned to cleaning Broke a crystal goblet. Next thing you know, he was doing the breaststroke in a pond with a bunch of eels and was probably eaten alive. The ancient historian Juvenal wrote of a slave owner whose greatest pleasure was, quote, listening to the sweet song of his slaves being whipped, unquote. <laughs> it's just kind of hard to imagine, right? Kind of hard to imagine. Now, Scripture does not speak against slavery as such. Um, it clearly speaks against the kidnapping of anyone for the purpose of making him or her a slave. So, I mean, Scripture doesn't like outwardly condemn slavery, and many people have just had a big problem with Christianity or whatever because of that. But it does forbid certain types of slavery, and that is in Exodus 21.16. You cannot go into a people group or a home and steal people out of it and then 
force them to be slaves. That was forbidden, which of course means the European and American slave trade that lasted well into the 19th century was an abomination, according to scripture. What we did here in America and what they did in England and other parts by buying or actually we were buying slaves that were ripped out of their villages and stuff in Africa, totally unbiblical. Just There's no precedent for it in scripture at all. It's completely forbidden. So, you know, unfortunately, there were many Christians back during these slave days that were justifying and rationalizing what they were doing, the purchasing of these slaves who had been ripped from their homes. There's, it's unbiblical to do such a thing. The Bible explicitly says do, that is not the right way to do it. And so our history is not great when it comes to that. I praise the Lord that it was brought to an end. Certain types of non-abusive and beneficial, if you can believe it, there were, there were certain types of non-abusive and beneficial slavery that were actually permitted or even advocated in the Old Testament. For example, a thief, and this is really what biblical slavery looks like, very different from what we're used to, a slave who could not make restitution, not, not a slave, a thief, my apology, a thief, a person who stole, if he could not make restitution for what he did, he could be indentured until repayment was worked out. Okay, so back then, they didn't really have a modern-day prison system, and if you were a thief and stole something and got caught, if you couldn't make restitution for what you had done, then you would basically have to enter into slavery to that person or family until that debt was paid. And I'll tell you this right now. That system is far superior to what we have today. Big time. Because first of all, if a person, a thief, did this, he could actually regain his dignity by going and earning back what he took, right? Because going to prison, there's nothing dignifying about going to prison. Secondly, people that have stuff stolen from them, the people that, are, that are, these offenses are uh, done against, there's no restitution made to them. The only restitution they have is that a person went to jail. That's not restitution. You still don't get your car back. You still don't get something back. And so back in the old days... According to scripture, that was a legitimate way that if a thief stole something, he could be indentured into slavery to that person until that debt was paid. I tell you, that's better than the system that we have in place today. So all of a sudden, slavery doesn't sound so bad when that's actually part of what it looked like back in these days. Also, another example would be if a fellow Israelite was bankrupt, you know, had no money left, was hungry, had no means to survive... He or she could voluntarily indenture himself or herself to another Israelite so that they could survive. Uh, in, in a way, it was almost like they could sell themselves into slavery, but not for a payment because no Israelite could be bought as a slave or sold as a slave. But if they, you know, think of it like this. It was like a welfare system without a welfare system. Boy, if you couldn't make it, there were plenty of people around that had money and you could say, you, basically, it was almost like employment. You basically would go to somebody and say, I, I can't, I'm not going to make it. I've, I've lost weight. I can't eat, you know. And Well, you can enter into service into my household, and we'll take care of you. We'll feed you and all that. That was another way that slavery worked then. That was considered slavery. And if this person was an Israelite and this happened to them, the master could, they, by law, according to the Old Testament, had to release that Israelite as a slave after six years. This was not a lifelong thing. And when this person was released, this slave was released, he or she had to be given enough provision to get started on their own by the master. 
So it sounds like a severance package, right? Doesn't that sound more like employment? Because employment back in these days was different. It was more like slavery, but this is actual true slavery, what we're talking about. You just, you couldn't make it. You went to work for somebody until you could make it, and then they had to take care of you on your way out. I'm telling you, this plan right here, what happened then is far superior to our modern-day welfare system, which just hooks people on money and doesn't do anything to empower them or to get them out there to become sufficient. Doesn't do it. Just keeps them, keeps them on the government. Other slave regulations. These are other things tied to slavery in these days. I'm giving you a history lesson because it gives us context, gives us meaning to this verse. A slave who fled from an oppressive master, if you had a harsh master that just beat him or whatever, that slave that left was given asylum and protection. So the slaves had rights in Jewish culture. And this person, man, he's got a bad slave master. This guy's a real jerk, mistreats him, abuses him physically, verbally, whatever, takes off. It's not like they go out and find him and kill him. This person gets asylum and protection, according to Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16. Even non-Jewish slaves, pagans, right, were not to be abused and were given their freedom if seriously injured by their master, Exodus 21, 26 through 27. In fact, every 50th year, you had what's called the year of Jubilee. You're familiar with that, Colby, and others here are. And, and what that meant was every 50 years, all slaves, no matter what their ethnic background was, were released. No questions asked. And so you might think, well, wow, that 50 years is way out there in the future. Well, if you just became a slave a couple years before, that was pretty cool. But at least they had this provision in place that you're, you're not going to keep slaves forever until they die, if possible. Every 50 years they were released. If a slave loved his master and preferred to remain with him, he could voluntarily but not by force, voluntarily indenture himself for life. He could say, look, I, I, I know that next year I can leave, but I don't want to. I've grown to love this family. I've grown to love this household. I, I like my job. Can I stay? Yes, you can stay. And he could kind of voluntarily hire himself to stay with this person for the rest of his life. And there was, it was basically kind of like what he would do is he would, you know, volunteer himself, then the master would take him over to the entrance to the home and he would drive an awl through his ear into the doorpost, symbolizing that he belonged to that household. It was like ear piercing. I think I would probably say, I think I'm going to leave next year because I'm really not down with the ear piercing thing, but I'd kind of like to stay. You know, Of course, I had my ears pierced when I was younger. Don't know why I told you that. Because uh, now it's going to be like, oh, he's one of those guys. Hey, I don't have a ponytail, Okay. If I had the ears pierced in the ponytail, it's a whole different dynamic. But he would take him over to the doorpost, you know, and drive an all through his ear into the doorpost, and it really just symbolized that he belonged to that household. So it was kind of a strange cultural thing, but also beautiful in that the slave became a part of that family. So these are, this is biblical slavery. So does it sound really, really bad, or does it sound very, very beneficial and good. Of course, it's gotten a bad rap because of what happened, you know, not too long ago. So people see bondservant and slavery in, Bi in the Bible, and they think, oh, they think of, you know, black folks being whipped. And that, that's not at all. Now, I would have to admit, though, in Greco-Roman culture, it was much more like, it was bad. 
so, but we're really talking about Jewish stuff here. So, although slavery is not uniformly condemned by either the Old Testament and New Testaments, the sincere application of New Testament truths has repeatedly led to the elimination of its abusive tendencies. I would say because of the gospel, the gospel and Jesus Christ coming and doing his work, it, and people getting saved and becoming Christians, it's really changed the whole dynamic. And you got to, Paul is writing to slaves in this thing. So slavery was going on in his era, and it just, the gospel changed everything. I mean, it, it, at the very beginning, when the gospel began to be proclaimed and people were getting saved, the harshness of slavery, slavery stayed for many years, but the harshness of it and the harsh aspects of it began to disappear as the love of Christ began to saturate believers. Because many believers back then owned slaves. And many slaves had become believers. And so now all of a sudden there was love, there was unity, there was peace, there was grace, there was mercy, right? So if there was a harshness in the household with slavery, if those tendencies were there, those things began to be softened by the gospel. When Christ's love is lived in the power of his spirit, unjust barriers in relationships are inevitably broken down. It's just what happens. As the Roman Empire disintegrated and eventually collapsed, the brutal abused, abused system of slavery literally collapsed with it. Due in great measure to what? The influence of Christianity. Seriously. In more recent times, the black slave trade was broken in Europe and America due largely to the powerful spirit-led preaching of, of men like John Wesley and, and George Whitfield and the godly statesmen, uh, such as guys like William Wilberforce, who you've probably heard of, and maybe William Pitt. I mean, you're just talking about a handful of guys that proclaimed the gospel, and it brought, literally over time, it brought an end to the American and English slave trades. And of course, there were many more people involved in it. Not only were the injustices of slavery beginning to be removed and hearts were being softened, but it eventually led to the extinguishing of it. It just went away. So pretty amazing. Now, like I said, there's many critics of Christianity and the Bible because slavery is condoned and even promoted in a sense in Scripture, but because we understand the right view of slavery now, it's logical that it would be okay according to Scripture. There's a lot of critics, and, and they say, well, you know, I, I don't like your religion. I don't like this or that because of the slavery. I don't like the Bible because of the slavery. But, you know, you've got to understand what the focus of the New Testament is. You know, again, it doesn't outwardly condemn slavery. It condemns some of the things that, that characterize it. The, the focus of the New Testament is not on reforming, restructuring, or dismantling human systems. You know, I, I can't stand the fact that, you know, it, because it doesn't just say end slavery or end this or end that. People say, well, I don't, I end the Bible. I don't want anything to do with it. But the purpose of the New Testament, the purpose of the gospel has never been literally at this time to bring to an end these systems, human systems. They're never, why is that? Because they're not the root of the problem. They're not the root of the problem. You see, Jesus didn't come to bring an end to slavery or to end some of these injustices. He will when he comes again. But he came that he might die and rise to give dead men life whose hearts would be changed and who would begin to love. That's how the systems are brought to an end when human hearts are changed. Because if you come in and put an end to slavery and men are the same, what happens? Slavery returns. 
So the purpose of the New Testament isn't, I, I don't like it because it doesn't tell us to condemn slavery. No, you don't understand. It's a transformative message that changes men and women. And once they change, society and culture change. And then slavery becomes a non-issue because you got a bunch of believers who are surrendered to the Lord's will. That's how Jesus goes about changing culture and changing the world. One person, literally, at a time. So the critics can say what they want, but they don't understand the purpose of the New Testament. They don't understand... They don't understand that the issue is always with the heart of men. It's our poisonous, rock-solid, dead, corpse hearts that long for sin and lust and all of these things. That is the cause of the world's problems. It's men's hearts. That's what's behind all of it. And the message of the gospel is, I'll give you a new heart. By my grace and mercy, through faith, by grace... So that's the focus of the New Testament is to reform men and women, to change them and make them like Jesus. Then all the earthly systems get changed over time. But it certainly seems like they're getting worse, doesn't it? And they are, because you know what? It has to get worse before it can get better. Because even though, I mean, there's a true church, right? There's, there's true believers, and they're loving, and they're doing their best. We make mistakes. But Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to, He's going to redeem it all along for that day. And he will actually once and for all change those systems. But for now, it's, it's through one person at a time through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our basic problems are not political, social, or economic. They're spiritual. And that is the area that Paul focuses on here in this text. You know, people say, I don't like this text because he tells slaves to do something in particular other than run from their masters because they should not have to be slaves. Again, people who would say that don't understand the nature of the New Testament or the work of Jesus. Paul is focusing on the spiritual things here. Slaves, slave masters, employees, employers. This is how you're to behave. This is how you're to get along as believers. Throughout history, including in our day, working people have been oppressed and abused by economic intimidation that literally amounts to a virtual form of slavery, right? We would all admit to this. Regardless of the particular economic, social, or political system, right? So many, in many circles, the workplace, employment, and all that is really no different than slavery depending on where you work. It's terrible, especially if you work for the Fed, it is a form of modern-day slavery in some ways. There's a lot of power and control and abuse and threatening, and it, it just really doesn't matter what field you're in. We see it in employment. Therefore, what? Paul's teaching totally applies to every employee and employer or future ones. In verses 5b through 7, Paul listed five things that a Christian employee owes to his employer. Okay, so we're talking about believers, right? Ephesians is written to believers. He's addressing spirit-filled, you know, submissive believers, right? They submit to one another out of fear and reverence to the Lord. This is the Christian employee, and this is what he owes to his employer, his or her employer. Let's look at each of these things here. Number one, number one is obedience, Paul just simply says in 5b, obey your earthly masters. Obey your earthly masters. What is the employee to do? What does he owe 
to his employer. What is he to render unto his employer? Obedience. His employer is, in a way, his master, if you will. In the New Testament times, many slaves did become Christians and thereby became children of God and joint heirs with Christ. Therefore, the natural response of many Christian slaves was to look upon their bondage as incompatible with their new standing before God. They reasoned that God's own children, who will reign with him forever, should not be subservient to any human being. Certainly not to some ruthless pagan. Okay, so what happens is you become a believer, you're a slave, you live in some slave household, and, and maybe the guy's not such a great guy, maybe he's a believer, maybe he's a non-believer, but all of a sudden you have this sense of entitlement because you're a child of God. I don't have to be a slave anymore. And what Paul is saying is, yes, you do. And here's the way you do it. Again, New Testament focus, not bringing slavery to an end, functioning in the gospel in it until it changes. And I tell you, there were probably some who, when this was read out loud to them, they went, he, they, he wants us to obey the slave. We're children of God. We're not supposed to obey. We're not supposed to yield to anyone but our heavenly father. Right? Because that's what we tend to think, right? As, as Christians, you know, hey, I don't have to. Are you kidding me? This is, I've got God. I've got, I've got Abba. I don't answer to anyone. Yeah, you do. You do. In fact, the way that you answer to him is by answering to the person standing in front of you who's your authority. If you don't answer to that person standing in front of you who's your authority, if you don't obey them, don't even walk out of there thinking, I'm obeying the Father. No, you're not. God's hinged it all together. You know, as spiritual nobility, we think we deserve, you know, more than common slavery or common employment. I don't have to work for this guy, this bozo. Well, you may not have to work for that bozo, but you certainly better be obedient while you do. The first obligation of a Christian is to please his Lord and to be faithful to him. One way to do this, the apostle says, is to give willing obedience to those whom you work under, regardless of who they are or what their character is like. And I'll tell you, that can be a very, very challenging thing. If you are a believer and you work for, you know, unbelievers, first of all, that can be challenging, but especially if they're like, you know, like me when I was an unbeliever, woo, you know, cussing like a sailor, carousing, you know, it's like, oh man, I mean, it can be, it can be really, really tough, but you're called to obey. Obey is the same word Paul used to describe the responsibilities children have to their parents in verse 1. In terms of work to be done, employees stand in the same relationship to employers as children to their parents. It is the employer's, and it is the employer's job to determine what must be done, and in many cases, how it should be done. It is the employee's job to obey his employer in these areas. Now, this does not mean that the employee is free to disobey God, even if his employer tells him to do so, okay? So there's where the line is drawn. If your employer, and you submit to your employer in obedience, but if that employer wants you to break God's law and go against his will, you have to refuse. I'd say lovingly refuse. I cannot do that. I cannot lie for you. I cannot fudge the books for you. I cannot do this. I cannot do that. You, you don't want to go against God on this thing. That's the stipulation. But sometimes employers are going to want you to do that. Sometimes they're not. Don't do it. 
But I'd say in every other case, it means that we should willingly do all honest work assigned without assuming that we know better than our employer or bosses, right? And that's typically what we do. You want me to do this like this? Let me tell you something. This is how that should be done. Just do it. I had Jared over at our house the other day, and you know he has a moving business, and he, he's doing, the Lord's blessing him, and, he, and he's going to hire, uh, well, thank you for even talking to my two sons. My two sons want to make some money, and they don't want to DJ. Um, they don't like sitting there for like four hours with nothing to do, because that's what DJing is when you do weddings. Um, that's how bad of a DJ I am. I just going to sit there and, <laughs> hi, you know. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, they don't want to do that. They've went with me once, once. And so Jared comes over, and he's laying out, you know, what he expects and, and what he wants from them, and he's giving them these, you know, and I was sitting there listening to it like, dang, he's hardcore. Like, because he, you know, it's like, okay, you got to do things my way, and you do this, and you do that, and I was sitting there going, man, he's, he, and then I got to this text, I was like, he was right, man. I mean, it's like, hey, if he lays out how he wants it done, and he's the owner, he's the boss, as an employee, you guys got to do that. Do that. I, I remember when I was working for this guy, he'd come out with some idea, and I'd do my idea. He had a guy named Rick Lukic who worked for him, who he loved, because he was like a canvas that Carl could paint on. Happy little clouds, you know, and he was like the Bob Ross of car audio. And he'd go out there and give him instructions, and the guy would do exactly what Carl told him. He'd come out to me and go, I ain't doing that. That's stupid. You know? That, that's, just, that's unorthodox. That doesn't even make any sense. And then I'd get it done, and Carl would go out and go, you didn't do what I told you. I said, I know. I did it my way. You know, doing the sermon, I'm like, eh, I have to talk to him after the service. I mean, literally, you just do what you're told to do. That's obedience. Secondly, you have respect. And I think it was really cool, Jared, what you laid out the other day and that you know exactly what you expect and you tell your employees. Because I tell you what, a lot of times guys like you will have expectations. You don't communicate and then you get ticked off at your employees. You got to communicate. Communication. So keep that up. My boys were just sitting there going, oh. This is an hour and a half. <laughs> no manual. How am I going to read these things? Let me get back to RuneScape. Uh, number two. That's a video game these kids are playing. It's really sad. Number two, respect with fear and trembling. Number two, respect with fear and trembling. In the scripture, the term fear and trembling usually means or points to respect or reverence which is another word for respect okay it's not like you know your employer walks and you're like "Ah, i don't know what to do you know i mean that's awkward that's weird that's not at all what this means fear and trembling is not i mean we take it literally but it's in a respect way that you help you hold your employer in high regard and you respect them okay you revere them and their authority primarily because you understand that they're appointed by God to that authority, so you ultimately you fear them because you fear God. So you need to have this fear and trembling-based kind of respect for your employer. I would say employees are to hold their employers, like I said, in high regard and respect them and their position. We shouldn't take our employer's position lightly. We shouldn't. The same words are used to describe a Christian's relationship to God Okay, as sons and daughters, we are told our heavenly father, we are, we are to hold, pardon me, we are to hold our heavenly father in highest regard and respect his person and position to the utmost. Uh, this may be difficult for us when it comes to employers or for employees to employers, especially when an employer.
employer is unwise or arbitrary, and that happens sometimes. You know, it's, it's difficult to respect an employer who, you know, loves Jesus and acts like he doesn't, or doesn't love Jesus and acts like people who don't love Jesus do, and, you know, it can be very, very difficult. You can have an indecisive employer, an arbitrary one. You can have you can have all kinds of dynamics with an employer. You could have one that just simply doesn't communicate much to you at all. Or one who's a total grinder and just on you all the time and hammering you, you know. But all of those things are not rationale to be disrespectful. You have to respect regardless. And I'll tell you, it's certainly made easier to respect when a Christian employee remembers that he or she is working for Jesus and not literally that employer in front of them. I mean, they are in a literal sense, but again, the perspective for the Christian is I do all things for Christ, even in this difficult work situation where it's controlling or manipulative or gossipy or any of that stuff. You, you got to, I mean, literally, I don't know what you got to do. Put it on your mirror. I, you know, I've had to do that in the past. Dude, you don't, you don't, you work for him, you work for her, but you work for Jesus, man. And when you believe that and know that and, and, and remind yourself of that, you can make it through tough days. But you've got to give that respect. Three, sincerity with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Sincerity with a sincere heart as you were, would Christ. Sincere is an interesting word here. It comes from two Latin words, sine, S-I-N-E, which means without, and sera, C-E-R-A, which is wax. Its meaning comes from the fact that in the ancient world, where the making of pottery was an important industry, dishonest potters would sometimes cover up cracks or flaws in their pottery by filling them with wax. So in normal, in normal usage, you know, for an average customer, they would not detect the wax when they're looking at a piece of pottery. They would maybe be fooled into buying something that wasn't the quality that they were led to believe was. But if you take a piece of pottery back in these days and held it up to the light, you could see the wax because it was a different hue. It was a different color. You would, you know, you would see a crack and then you would see a lighter color or a darker color and you would say, okay, this, this piece of pottery is not what it claims to be and it's certainly not worth the money that they want. The wax would show up. Good pottery was sometimes stamped with the words sincera, which means without wax as proof of its good quality. Now, Paul's point is that Christian slaves are to serve their masters with the same heart and attitude they have toward Christ. He said, in effect, you serve Christ with a sincere heart, respect for him, do the same for your master. It's almost like he's saying, man, if, you know, I can take you and hold you up to the light and see if you're being sincere, if there's something that's filling in in you that shouldn't be there like a wrong motive, a false motive, anger, malice, or something like that. And so it, that's why he, he uses this word and gives this illustration through that word. I mean, hold yourself up to the light. Are you being sincere in your service to your employer? Are you doing it with a sincere heart and with the right motivation? And I tell you, the right motivation for an employee shouldn't just be the paycheck. It should be, I'm serving Jesus and this is a way for me to do that. Now, the paychecks are a really nice blessing that comes at the end of it, provided that it's not made of rubber. Boing, 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 and that happens. You know? 
That can happen too. And when I say that, I'm not saying that's happened between Carl and I. He has always paid his bills. He's probably thinking, you son of a gun, I've never bounced anything to you. Yeah. They're thinking, he used to, they're putting it together. Do the math. He used to work for the guy, the bald guy in the front row. That guy bounces checks. He's terrible. He needs to take Dave Ramsey. Next thing you know, they're, they're yelling, crucify him. No, I'm just kidding. The progression, right? You know? No, I had to clarify because he's, he's, been, a, he's been like the best guy in the world to work for. He's a good man. But that's it, you know, it gives the idea of being sincere in heart, like right motive, you know, and, and right attitude, right? Sincerity and attitude, go, they're synonymous, they go hand in hand. Hold yourself up to the light, what do you see? A bunch of cracks and false motive and, and all of these things, you know? That's what he's saying. We're to serve our employer, we're to work for our employer as employees with sincerity. And, and not only does it have this whole wax and cracked pottery thing going on here, but it also denotes generosity and liberality. It suggests that the slave or employee should not hold back from his best, but should actually pour himself out liberally in honest service. Okay, that translates in our day, work hard. Work hard for your employer, man. Why? Because you're just working for that guy? Partially. You're called to do that for him, but because you're also doing it for Jesus. You know? It's a challenge, right? Now, I think I have to just pause to confess to my, my old boss here that, you know, just, just here between you and I and all these people, I apologize. There were times where, you know, I was, most of the time, far more content to sit on a bar stool and do not much of anything when I was required to work. And there were things to do for cleaning, and you know, it's, it's, it was pathetic. I look back after studying this, I'm like, dude... You can't even take communion today with your people because you have sinned against your old boss. I, I'm sorry. He just cussed me out. No, he's, he's like, you mother. No, he, he said, you know, I have to apologize. Yeah, I do because it was wrong because, you know, he has an expectation. Our employers have an expectation. They hire us and they pay us a wage to come and do work, you know. And, and so what do we do? We come and do work. Even if it's challenging at times. And he was great to work with. And some of his employees, on the other hand, were kind of challenging. You know? Huh? I don't know why. I, I, I said, you know, and this is funny. I said, um, uh, you know, you need to invite your employees to come this Sunday so that, you know, they can hear it and think. He goes, it's my only day away from them. So, <laughs> but they need the gospel. You know what I mean? What if they change, you know? But I said, I, amen, brother. You know, I, I know what he meant. I mean, they, they can exasperate you. Uh, but I do apologize for, for, not, for not living out some of this stuff here, you know. And if I ever get a chance to go back and do it with you, I'm going to do a better job. Hold me accountable. Hold us accountable, right? I don't want, if I'm held up to the light, I don't want to see a bunch of filling. I want to be sincere in what I'm doing with all people because I love Jesus. For loyalty, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Loyalty. Paul warns slaves not to perform what he calls eye service. Eye service has to do with working hard when your employer is present and doing little to nothing when he is absent. Got to confess something else. Be sitting around doing nothing, Carl pulls into the parking lot, all of a sudden I've cleaned the entire building in four minutes. <laughs> Literally. 
I loved the fact that he had a big diesel truck because I could hear it coming down the road. When he turned to it, you know, he bought an older BMW. He's been fixing it up to sell it. He whispers right into the parking lot. He's like a ninja. He comes behind you. comes up behind you. What are you doing? Well, this stool needed to be held down. It started floating, you know. I, it literally, eye service has to do with, there's our guy. Get to work. You know, there, there's our employer. There's my manager. All of a sudden, I get busy, right? Doesn't work with Caltrans workers. No offense if you are one. Right? They just keep holding, all six guys hold up the same broom. While one guy's killing himself in the trench. Right? I'm like, I'm your employer. I pay taxes. Honk at him. Get to work. You know? They give you the one finger peace sign. Loyalty. Eye service. It just has to do with, you know, only like doing stuff when your employer's present or watching, you know. It was a sad day when Carl installed cameras that he could look at on his phone. It was. It was like, dang it, it's always on me. Didn't change much. You know, the employee who does this, he does not, you know, he or she does not perform their duties with a sincere heart or represent the true spirit and attitude of a Christian. It's like they just want to perform when the eyes are on them, but when they're not. I mean, how is that a sincere heart? A sincere heart is going to work hard all the time. It's not looking for an opportunity not to work. Like when the taillights leave the parking lot, you know. MacArthur says, uh, being Christian should always make a person a better, more productive, and more agreeable worker. Because we work for Christ. Paul refers to those who do this, right? The ones who do the whole eye service thing. He calls them people pleasers. People pleasers work hard when others are watching because they want to make a good impression and position themselves for a promotion or for some kind of praise or something like that. You know, they don't care when the eyes are turned or the back's turned, but man, when that boss is looking, I'll tell you what, I perform at optimum level. Not just because I'm you know, an eye service kind of person, but because I'm motivated by a desire to earn his trust to earn his favor, you know, to make it look like I'm a hard worker, maybe to get a raise, maybe to get a promotion. That's people-pleasing, according to this text. They aim to please people because they want something in return, not because they are loyal to their employer. There it is. See, if you're loyal, you're just going to work hard all the time, no matter what. You're going to do what's required. You're going to be respectful. You're going to be obedient. You're going to try to do all that stuff. But, you know, the people pleaser, as soon as the eyes are turned, as soon as no one's watching. Sometimes they do this in front of other employees, too, because they've got some kind of an insecurity and they want the other employees to think that they're the best thing since sliced bread, you know, and they just, they're working hard when the eyes are on them because they're people pleasers, they're trying to get something, and when the eyes aren't on them, they're sandbagging and exploiting the company. A Christian employee, however, is to work hard for his employer regardless of who's watching and regardless of what he can get out of it beyond his regular paycheck. He sees himself as a bond servant of Christ, and he aims to do the will of God, which has to do with working hard and being loyal to his employer. Write that down. Five, goodwill. Rendering service with a goodwill, as to the Lord and not to man. This expresses the attitude of the employee who does not need prompting or compelling. Okay, the way that I interpret goodwill here would be he or she is a self-starter. All right? There, there are a Christian employee who's a self-starter who doesn't have to be babysat by his employer or her employer, right? We've seen this. We've maybe even done this before. Kind of, kind of goes along with loyalty and all that. 
You know, there's, there's some employers, bless their heart, that they literally have to camp out with the employees at all times because if they don't, the employees are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know? They're not, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they, they, um, they open the store for him or whatever and then they just kind of get on the stool and don't do anything. You know, his, his expectation is that they get to work and they're a self-starter. They're responsible. They get to work. I don't have to tell them all the time to get to work. He gets to work. When he's supposed to be at work, he gets there on time. That's another thing. I don't know what happened to our culture with all this lateness. It's insane, right? Back in my day, you got fired for that. You got like three strikes. Boom, you're out of here. You were late, you were late, you were late. It happens. You know, maybe it's still happening today to some, but, you know, I don't know. It's not happening at my, my old boss's store, I'll tell you. That, when some of those guys just kind of meander in when they want. You know, he used to drive me ballistic. And drives him crazy, too. Why is my store not open? You know? Christian employees should not have to be babysat by their employers or goaded, prodded to stay busy and to get to work. They should be self-starters and hardworking, so much so that they can be left alone and unsupervised. Okay, so that's a pretty tall order, but if you think about it, it's challenging for us because it's not where our generation is. But if you went back 50 years, everyone would be affirming and saying hallelujah to this, and they'd say this is exactly what we're doing, because I think that we've just about on the tail end of losing the true hardcore working generation. It's the 70-year-olds today. I mean, just, there's never been, dur during the you know, peak of the industrial, there's never been a workforce like the World War II folks. And today it's like, I just do as little as possible and I don't want to do anything. So this is really challenging for us because we've taken the poison pill. This is, a, if you want to put it this way, this is a biblical work ethic. This is what we're to be about. There's one more thing we need to notice before we look at Christian employers. As motivation for faithful and exemplary service, Paul wrote about rewards in verse 8. Look at it with me. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. This is a good verse. When Paul wrote these words, he was thinking about heavenly rewards only, right? Because slaves were not normally rewarded in earthly terms. A slave was required, even in the Christian households, was required to do his duty. But the interesting thing is that rewards, whether earthly or heavenly, do matter, and that Paul was not afraid to introduce them as a motivation here. Put in economic terms... This means that a system that guarantees workers a due reward for labor is closer to God's own way of operating than a system that does not. James Montgomery Boyce said this, For this reason and others, I believe capitalism is a better system than communism. Though this does not mean that Christianity stamps either one with its approval or disapproval. Paul's statement here is, is such an encouragement... I think it is. It's such an encouragement because it guarantees that God will reward us no matter what. No matter what our work environment or situation is. An employer may not appreciate or even be aware of the good work we do. Perhaps because he is indifferent or because someone else takes the credit for what is done. That happens. Maybe you've had that happen to you. But God knows and God rewards. 
No good thing done in his name and for his glory can pass his notice or fail to receive his blessing. The story is told of an elderly missionary couple who were returning home on a ship after many years of sacrificial service in Africa. On the same ship was Theodore Roosevelt, who had just completed a highly successful big game hunt. As the ship docked in New York Harbor, thousands of well-wishers and dozens of reporters lined the pier to welcome Roosevelt home. But not a single person was there to welcome the missionaries. As the couple rode to the hotel in a taxi, the man complained to his wife, it just doesn't seem right. We give 40 years of our lives to Jesus Christ to to, to minister and to win souls in Africa, and nobody knows or cares when we return. Yet the president goes over there for a few weeks to kill some animals, and the whole world takes notice. But as they prayed together that night before retiring, before going to bed, the Lord seemed to say to them, Do you know why you haven't received your reward yet, my children? It is because you are not home yet. It's beautiful. I'm I'm sure that instant peace came upon them and they realized again, it's not about pomp and circumstance. It's not about earthly rewards. It's about serving the Lord who, who is gracious and who is kind and who is generous and who promises. Man, if, if you work in a difficult environment with a difficult boss or difficult employees, hang in there and keep serving Jesus. He knows what's going on with you. He, know, he knows what's happening moment by moment. He's totally aware of all of it. And he will, he will, he will reward you. Why? Because verse 8 says so. It's a promise. And I tell you what, it might be the very thing that you need to hear right now because of your work situation. Now let's look at what Christian employers own to their employees. And this goes much faster. Masters, do the same to them. Speaking of the employees, speaking of the slaves. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Having described the duty of slaves to masters, or in our terms, employees to employers at length, right? Put quite a bit of time in on it, Paul did. He now treats the corresponding duty of those who are in charge. This is dealt with more briefly because Paul was interested in examples of submission Chiefly, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, and slaves to masters. However, everything Paul said to employees also applies to employers. Since, as he argues, masters are to what? Do the same to them. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Now, do the same to them does not mean that masters are to obey their slaves just as their slaves are to obey them, or they're they're not to obey their employees as their employees are to obey them. If that's the case, then we now have chaos. Because somebody's got to be leading. Now, I would say that 
a wise employer will listen to his employees when they offer good wisdom or input on something. They'll take good counsel for them, from them, right? It's not like, I don't have to obey, I don't have to listen. No, it's not that. But you can't flip it. That's the one facet here, the one piece that's different in the obedience. The employer is not to go around seeking to obey the employee. He or she has to lead. But all the others are there. The loyalty, the sincerity, those are things that are exchanged between them. It's so important to get that. I have to be loyal to my employees? You're darn right. I have to be sincere? Yes. I have to be respectful? Yes. I'll tell you the best way to look at it. What it means is that masters or employers are to treat their slaves or employees as they themselves want to be treated. It's like the golden rule. That's the easiest way, I think, to remember any of this. Treat others as you want to be treated. But we need to be careful there because some people don't understand the love of God or know how to love themselves, and so they abuse themselves, therefore they abuse others. And that's exactly what happens to those who do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we understand the love of God as best we can, because it's huge, we know how to love ourselves rightly, not with compulsion, not with things that kill us, hurt us, harm us. We can begin to love others the way that we're supposed to love them because we understand the love that God has for us. But I'd say treat others as you want to be treated. That's huge. That's what he's saying. A Christian employer's relationship to his employees should have the same motivation and goal as a Christian employee's relationship to his employer, the desire to obey and please the Lord. An employer is to use his authority as to the Lord, just as employees are to submit to authority as to the Lord. See, there's the mutual submission. That's an expression of mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ, 521, where we started. A Christian employer's first work just as a Christian employee's first work is to do God's will and to manifest Christ-likeness in all that he does. He makes business decisions, first of all, on the basis of God's standards of righteousness, truth, and honesty, seeking to manifest the nature and will of his heavenly Father in everything he does. He deals with his employees on the basis of their own welfare and best interests. He doesn't treat them like commodities. He doesn't treat them like living tools. He deals with them fairly because that is the Lord's will. He treats them with respect because to do so is to respect and honor the Lord. A Christian employer is to do what? He is to stop threatening his employees, it says. The term has to do with loosening up or releasing. The idea is that a Christian employer is to use his authority and power as little as possible. You have to walk around all the time, you know. You're to use it as little as possible. He's not supposed to throw his weight around. He's not supposed to overpower and dominate his employees, even when they're acting like fools. He's not supposed to abuse them verbally, sometimes physically, and sometimes it's not... It wouldn't be that he lays his hands directly on an employee, but he lays his hands on every object around him in front of the employee. When I was uh, a sapling, 
2017. I uh, went to work for a local window supplier, and no, it was not Boyd's Glass. <laughs> got to bring clarity here today because, first of all, Carl got blasted earlier for bouncing checks. Now it's Mike's turn because Mike owns a glass and window business. It, this was my second job, okay? The first one I, I'm not too proud of. I should be. It was Long John Silver's. Um, the company was Christian. They, you know, said they were Christian all the time. I was not. I was not raised in the church. I had no idea. I, I, I didn't know the Lord. I, I didn't want to know the Lord. I didn't even know. I didn't have any concept of any of that. And the company had several uh, male employees, a bunch of guys, you know, and they, they were all Christian as well. And I was uh, paired with uh, this, this, actually like the, I don't know if he was the manager or the foreman of the company. You know, there was an owner that stayed at the office or went out and bid jobs. I was paired with, with the supervisor and another veteran employee. And these guys took me out into the field, field and, and trained me how to carry and hang windows and do the flashing, all that stuff. Mike, if you ever need backup, don't call me. Um, but I, I, you know, I got actually good at that, doing sliders and all that stuff. I, I learned how to do it and it was really thanks to those two guys. But I have to tell you, those two men were the meanest, nastiest, ugliest, most abusive guys I've ever worked with to date. It, that was the worst company I've ever worked for to date. It was horrible. These guys called me names all day long. Uh, they pushed me around. They laughed at me. They mocked me. They ridiculed me. They got all the other employees to join in. They even got the owner to <laughs> laugh along. I mean, it was a disaster. After two years, I just couldn't take it any longer. I marched right into that owner's office and said, uh, today was my last day. And he was totally surprised. See, they, they were making fun of me and treating me like garbage, not because I was a bad employee, but it was just what they did. And so when I went in there and quit, he was looking at me like, what happened? And I said, honestly, I, your company and your employees, I've never been treated with such disrespect. I can't do it anymore. And you know what he said? Bye. See you later. I had literally forgotten about that experience until I maybe even blocked it out, until I wrote this sermon. Maybe I've mentioned it to Mike before, I don't know, but it just came back to me when I was writing this. And I'd just tell you this, man, if you're, an, if you're a Christian employer... Don't be like those guys. <laughs> and don't let your employees be like that to each other. But it's like, I look back, and, and the thing that got me about it wasn't the abuse. It was that they did it in the name of Jesus. Don't do that, and don't let your employees, sometimes the employees are just so abusive to one another, not only to the employer, but to everyone else around them. Don't tolerate that stuff. I have to commend Carl he would hear things being said there, and, you know, and I, would, I, I was pathetic in that I would dish it back, which was not what I should do. You don't fight fire with fire, but you know, he would come in and hear things and just say, you know, just stop that garbage. Don't let people do that to each other, and certainly don't do that as a believer. It will mark people in such a way that's not good. Let's wrap it up. Christian employer realizes that his own authority, though God-given, is strictly functional and temporary. He knows that he and his employees alike are under the same supreme authority of God. 
that their master as is his master, right? You, you have the same master. If you have a Christian employee and you're a believer, you have the same master. Keep that in mind. That's God. And he's not here on earth, as it says in the text. He is in heaven, but he is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's all-powerful. He sees and hears and records everything. There's nothing we can do outside of his, him seeing it and hearing it. Also, the Christian employer knows that before God, he is no more important or worthy in himself than the least of his employees because there is what? No partiality with God. In other words, he understands, the employer understands that he is not higher, better, or greater than his employees because God has no favorites. There are no advantages to being an employer or boss with God because he loves his children equally. Our rank on earth does not reflect our rank in heaven, and I love that. That's so important. You can, you can be a fish fryer at Long John's, and man, you're the same as Charles Spurgeon in the Lord's eyes. How cool is that? The oldest, wisest, most mature, and most accomplished believer is equal to the believer who was born again yesterday. That's awesome, man. That is awesome. 